This is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update Podcast. This is part of an ongoing series featuring critical insights from the physicians and healthcare professionals on the front lines of the pandemic. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's COVID-19 Update video and podcast. Today, we're talking with Dr. Lena Wen, public health professor at George Washington University, columnist from the Washington Post and a CNN medical analyst in Baltimore about how physicians can help clear up COVID confusion and our response to the pandemic in the wake of Omicron. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a pretty confusing time. We've been talking about this confusion around Omicron all week long, and I think you captured it perfectly in a tweet uh, earlier this month saying, there's confusion about where we are with Omicron. The seeming contradiction is that the risk to individuals is low while the risk to society is high. So I'd like to talk about that contradiction, exactly what it means and how physicians uh, should be communicating the level of risk associated with Omicron to their patients, you know, given this. Well, Todd, it's a pleasure to be with you today. And um, you are referencing a post column that I had written specifically on this. Why is it that we see these head by side by side headlines that on the one hand, people who are vaccinated and boosted, they are at very low risk due to severe outcomes from Omicron because it is milder and the vaccines protect as well. But on the other hand, we're seeing massive societal disruption, including our hospital systems in many parts of the country getting overwhelmed. So why is that? Well, I think there is a policy answer to this, but on the individual level and what it is that clinicians can be doing is our patients are coming to us asking about what they can do, how they should be thinking about risk and how they should navigate activities in their life. And so to that effect, I would recommend three things that we ask our patients to think about the following first the medical circumstances of their household. If everybody is vaccinated and fully and fully boosted, and also um, they are generally healthy, that's a very different type of risk than if there is somebody in the family and their household who is immunocompromised or has otherwise underlying medical conditions. The second is risk tolerance. There are many people who at this point will say, now that I'm vaccinated and protected, I'm willing to take on the risk, understanding that there is a chance of long-haul COVID, there is a chance that I could still become infected. However, I do not want to hold back from pre-pandemic activities anymore, versus there are others who are vaccinated but still want to be more cautious. And then the third factor is the value of activities to that individual, because we all know that we value activities differently. For some people, seeing their families is the most important. I have patients who really want to get back to the gym or really value going to the theater. So understanding that risk remains cumulative and that we should be helping our patients to navigate this very tricky time by looking at their individual circumstances, their risk tolerance, but also their own personal values is something that um, I'm sure our, uh, all clinicians are navigating in some way. Um, I read your latest op-ed in the Washington Post with great interest um, in that you say it's time uh, for the administration to come up with kind of, I would call it a year two pandemic policy. I mean, year one was all about getting vaccinated and you kind of lay out two possible routes with two different sets of implications. Let's talk about that. 
Right. I think it's important for President Biden to state very clearly, as I think he has been doing, that this is not 2020. This is not 2021. We have many more tools at our disposal, in particular vaccines, but also testing and treatment and masking and other ways for us to protect ourselves that we didn't really know about or have as much of earlier. Also, we're dealing with a milder variant. And at some point, we do need to message, well, what is it that we're going to be doing going forward? What is the path for the country? And I think there are two very different paths. One is prioritizing reducing infection, which actually is more of the same as in focusing on getting people vaccinated, boosted, tested, masking. This path would save lives, reduce the level of COVID, allow us to rein in the virus so that we're able to contact trace, quarantine, isolate, and so forth. But we would still be living in pandemic mode, which is something that I'm not sure that much of the country will tolerate. The second path is to turn the page on the pandemic and say, as long as our hospitals are not getting overwhelmed, which they are at the moment, but let's say once we get past Omicron and our hospitals are no longer getting overwhelmed, as long as the vaccines continue to protect against severe illness, then maybe we need to focus on removing restrictions and preserving societal function. That may even look like not testing asymptomatic individuals, not having isolation and quarantine, but I don't know if that is a path that our leadership, our political leadership, are ready to go in yet. Still, the point is, as we emerge from Omicron, which we will in the coming weeks, what's next? How are we going to prepare for the next year of this pandemic, knowing that it is very different from the previous couple of years? That second strategy sounded a little bit like the NBA. Um, I'm curious, in your, you know, in that second strategy, I think you said the priority priorities on kind of treatment. Um, and there's the kind of once we get past the Omicron and our hospitals are not so overloaded that we're able to kind of make an assessment here, kind of what do we do in the meantime? Right. There's a school of thought that if we are able to get COVID-19 into something between a cold and the flu, then we should also be treating it like something between the cold and the flu, meaning that we don't we don't shut down society. We never talk about shutting schools because of because of colds. We are not making people quarantine at home or isolate at home because they have the flu. And so should we move to a point where vulnerable individuals who could be candidates for oral antivirals or monoclonal antibodies, they get tested to find out if they have COVID-19, then they get early treatment if they if they do to reduce their chance of severe illness. And people who are in contact with vulnerable individuals. So before you go visit your elderly grandparent in a nursing home, maybe you get tested, but maybe everybody else does not need to get tested if they are asymptomatic. And perhaps even if they are symptomatic, they don't need to be isolated at home. I mean, I, again, I don't think we're ready to have this conversation just yet for now, but I think it's something that looking forward, if the vaccines continue to protect us well, and if our hospitals are not getting too slammed, we may, it may be time for us to think about what does the end game of COVID look like? And is it going to resemble more like influenza? I was wondering if we were like entering end game stage a year ago. Uh, and now, of course, we're not there. Are we looking at a post Omicron future? Uh, I know the situation's fluid. There's no crystal ball. What do you think that future looks like? 
I do think we should be looking at the end game. And by end game, I don't mean that we will have eradicated COVID. In fact, we need to accept that COVID is going to be with us, just like the Spanish flu from 1918, 1919 still is with us in some way now. And so I think we need to prepare for a number of different scenarios. One is a scenario that enough people got infected with Omicron and in combination with vaccination that maybe we'll have reached herd immunity. Maybe that's a possible scenario. Another scenario on the opposite end of the spectrum is there could be new variants that arise that may even evade the immune protection that we already have. So how do we make sure that we ramp up enough um, the capability to produce new boosters, the ability to have more testing, to have a lot more treatments available in preparation for that, for that scenario? Then I think there is a third scenario, which is might this become more of a seasonal pattern? Uh, might we actually have a very good spring and summer, but then have some resurgence come the fall of COVID-19 because immunity will have waned and also more people will be going indoors. This is still a winter respiratory virus. I think that is still a possibility as well. But the mentality for Americans needs to change, as in there are some people who never thought that COVID was real. There are some people who are still in lockdown, despite the fact that they're vaccinated, boosted and pretty well protected. And then a lot of people in between. And so I think that's going to be a big challenge for the Biden administration and state and, and local officials, but also a big challenge for us as clinicians, because our patients will have very different expectations and very different understanding of their own realities. So how do we help them to cope with it, understanding that we need to assist them with their own preferences and situations, but also we need to be providing them with accurate information so that they can make real risk-based assessments of, of where they are. It's interesting because we have so many tools in the armament, many of which are new. Um, and it sounds like from what you're talking about, in, in any case, it's about preparation for the future of whatever uh, nature throws at us in the next uh, wave of this and having all those tools available so that under the strain of a, of a big surge like we're in right now, uh, there aren't weak, weak links. I, I'm curious when you now kind of look back and this is a little bit unfair, like, but knowing what we know now, is there anything you kind of would have changed about the pandemic response in 2021? I think that the Biden administration and coming in really put their eggs into the vaccine basket, which in some ways was exactly the right thing to do at that moment. But they didn't fully succeed, as we know, because there are a lot of people who did not get vaccinated and there are a lot of people who got vaccinated but not boosted. And so I think there remains a lot of confusion over um, over vaccines, in particular about boosters. I, I think a major failure by the administration was not putting enough emphasis on testing and treatment. The vaccines, all the, the eggs were all in the vaccine basket. And so um, I, I don't think anyone could argue that we need a lot more testing at this point. I'm looking back, I think the biggest failure and the biggest mistake that still needs to be fixed going forward is on public health communication. It, there have been a lot of unforced errors, in particular by the CDC. Um, the administration and coming in made such a big deal out of restoring trust in public health, restoring trust in our federal health officials. And that made those errors even 
more exacerbated. Um, the um, the CDC was very late to um, to um, to adopt um, um, higher quality masks as something that they would recommend. I'm glad that they did, but it really came quite late, way after we all knew that COVID is airborne, that we need higher quality masks. Um, there was a lot of confusion around boosters that still resulted in about two thirds of Americans who are eligible to get boosters not having boosters. And then the recent guidance on isolation made things so confusing that we as clinicians are unable to fully comprehend and then convey it to our patients, which I know is something that the AMA has spoken out publicly about. And so I, I think that that is going to be the biggest challenge going forward, because when people doubt the advice of public health officials, they're not going to follow that advice. And that doesn't just have repercussions for people following CDC guidance on COVID. It has repercussions for all aspects of public health. And also many people are not making the distinction between what's happening federally versus what's happening on the local and state level. And so I would really worry about if there's another pandemic or another instance where we need people to listen to public health officials, how much of that trust has been eroded. It needs to be built back urgently. And it's a, you know, it's a really challenging problem because it's not uh, the CDC or anybody in isolation. I wake up every day, I look at 50 headlines with the quote, latest news about COVID and recommendations and everything. It is enough to make your head spin. Uh, you know, you, uh, because of your platform, you have a chance to uh, give practical advice, hear questions from people all the time. Um, uh, given all the confusion that's out there like right now, I wonder like what, what's the question that you're hearing most often? How are you answering it? Well, Todd, I'll, I'll get to that, but just one note about the change. I, I do think it's really important for us as clinicians to keep on communicating that change is to be expected. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's something that we do in clinical medicine all the time. I mean, if, if we're treating a patient for cancer, our patient would absolutely expect that if there's a new cancer treatment out, that we would change our recommendation and that we would at least tell our patient about the new science that's come out. So patients are used to this concept of change. We can communicate that better, but I, I actually don't think that just the fact that there's so much research coming out, I don't think that that's the source of confusion. I think the source of confusion is when there are policies that don't make sense and when something doesn't pass the common sense test, a lot of people end up um, a lot of people end up confused. So in terms of what questions people have that I'm getting a lot now, I'm getting a lot of questions about testing, um, which tests are are useful when people should be getting tested. I'm getting a lot of questions about isolation, about how long should somebody actually be in isolation? What happens in a family if a child tests positive, but parents still haven't tested positive yet? How do they manage that? Um, so every week I do a I write a newsletter for The Washington Post and do a Q. A Q Q&A for CNN, and I've been focusing on some of these topics, which are the questions that I hear a lot from patients, too. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org my inbox. That's ama-assn.org slash my inbox. So you've, you know, obviously through those channels, you know, your voice is heard uh, on a lot of topics uh, and, and even and even beyond, you know, vaccines, COVID-19, 
Um, one of the things we're really trying to do here at the AMA is to elevate the voices of physicians on this matter. Um, do you have any advice for other physicians out there who'd like to make their voices heard on a larger scale, maybe not Washington Post scale, but uh, more than where they are right now? Absolutely. So my advice is start with where you have the influence right now and do not wait. I see a lot of physicians, my colleagues who are saying, well, I want to run for this national position with a major medical organization or run for Congress or testify in front of Congress. I mean, all these things are great. I would absolutely encourage you to do those things too, if that's what you want to do. But there are so many ways to make a difference right now. So look to see what are the hospital boards or committees that you could be joining? Could you be changing the way that your medical practice is doing something with their policy? Also on the local level, can you do something with your school board? Can you testify in front of city council? What about the state legislature? What about working with your local Department of Health? Basically, look to see where your voice can be heard now at the level that you have the most influence and expand from there. Two more things. One is do what you really like doing. I have a lot of people asking me, well, I don't like writing. I hate social media. How can I be involved in these things? Don't make yourself do something that you don't like doing. There is absolutely going to be something else that you enjoy more. So make your voice heard in those other ways, doing whatever you love to do. I love writing. That's always been my passion. And so I would encourage people to follow their passion and make and exert their influence that way. And then finally, it's also okay, depending on the stage of career that you're in and what job you have, if you cannot make your voice heard right now, Give yourself some um, some grace in this respect, as in maybe you're working in a job where you might have repercussions if you're speaking out. It's okay to not make your voice heard right now. There will be other stages in your career where you're able to do so. And so do what you can now with the tools that you have, the passion that you have, but also the in the job specification that you're in right now, understanding that there are many different ways for us to advocate and make our voices heard. Well, just in closing, uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, the strain that our our uh, healthcare system is under, the, uh, our physicians, nurses, care teams are, are are facing every day with Omicron. Any other pieces of advice uh, you'd like to uh, give to physicians before we close today? I don't think that people understand what are the strains that clinicians are are under right now. I don't think people understand it if they haven't been on the front lines, if they haven't been with us. Um, working in our EDs, working in our hospitals, working in our ICUs, working in our primary care offices, they don't know. And it's not because of lack of willingness to understand, they just don't know. And so I think by sharing our stories, um, that's how that's how we can really change minds and influence policy. Also, policy is going to happen with or without us. And I believe strongly that we have a role, we as physicians have a role to play here because I would much rather that these policies be made with physician input. And that's why I so commend the work that the AMA and other medical organizations do in advocating for our profession, advocating for our patients, helping to make sure that we are aiming for health equity and assisting the most vulnerable. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for being here today. It's such a pleasure to meet you and hear your perspective. Uh, we'll be back soon with another COVID-19 update video and podcast soon. For updated resources on COVID-19, visit ama-assn.org COVID-19. Thanks for joining us and please take care. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours 
or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.